Can you tell us a joke? When you're asked to tell a joke, you just all of a sudden forget all the good jokes that you have. So I've got to look this one up. This is actually taken from your old father, William. This is a poem by Lewis Carroll. Lewis Carroll wrote The Adventures of Alice, Alice in Wonderland. In my youth, said his father, I took to the law and argued each case with my wife and the muscular strength which it gave to my jaw has lasted the rest of my life. <laughs> I think my husband will say the same about this. <laughs> Welcome to the Harvard Association for Law and Business HALB Leadership Podcast. I am so happy that you're joining us today. I'm your host, Genevieve Antono, and I'm a 3L at Harvard Law School and one of the co-presidents of the Harvard Association for Law and Business. We created this podcast as an educational resource for law and pre-law students who are interested in leadership development and in the intersection of law and business. So if that sounds like you, you're in the right place. For more information about our student club, please visit orgs.law.harvard.edu slash H-A-L-B. Hey, everyone. In today's episode of the HALB Leadership Podcast, I am super excited to introduce you to my mentor, Edith Shi. Edith is an executive director of C.K. Hutchison Holdings, which is a global Fortune 500 conglomerate and one of the largest companies listed on the main board of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. For the year that ended on December 31st, 2019, C.K. Hutchison reported a turnover of approximately 440 billion Hong Kong dollars, which is around 56 billion U.S. dollars. If you have spent time in Asia or Europe, you're probably familiar with some of the group's businesses. For example, C.K. Hutchison's A.S. Watson retail brand is one of the best-known and longest-established trading names in Asia. They're behind Watson's, the Park and Shop Supermarkets, Fortress, the Electrical Appliances Chain, and Watson's Wine. And C.K. Hutchison Group Telecom operates, for example, the three communications networks in Italy, the UK, Sweden, Denmark, Austria, and Ireland. So if you've ever gone into a three-store to, you know, get a SIM card, um, C.K. Hutchison is behind that. They also have ports, infrastructure, energy, and all sorts of other super interesting businesses. Edith is an executive director of CK Hutchison, and she was head group general counsel of CKHH and its predecessor entity, um, Hutchison Wampoa, for more than 20 years until 2017. So Edith basically set up CK Hutchison's in-house legal department. She is one of Asia's most respected leaders in law and business, and it's really such an honor to interview her on this podcast. But it's not only an honor, it's also a joy, because Edith has been such an important mentor in my life. I met Edith about six years ago when I was an undergraduate at Columbia University. 
Edith is a graduate of Teachers College of Columbia University, and I was matched with her through a mentorship program through the Columbia Career Center. And having Edith as my mentor and my role model changed my life for many reasons, but especially because she was the first lawyer and really the first business professional to mentor me. She was the first person to show me that it's possible to be tough and intense at work and also a kind and generous mentor who is committed to lifting up the next generation. If you are a pre-law student who I have ever mentored, just let it be known that I was mentoring nobody (laughs) before I met Edith. I learned to share my time with other students because Edith shared her time with me. She was also the first person to show me that you can go all in on the corporate business side of things and still be committed to music, the arts, and living a rich, meaningful life. So Edith is really into music. She sings. And she showed me really early on that I don't need to give up my creative side to have a path in the corporate world. And frankly, just watching Edith's, you know, level of focus and her work ethic has just pushed me to aim higher and work harder all these years. I have learned so, so much from Edith over the last few years, and I'm really excited to share her insights with you today. There is really a lot that law and pre-law students can learn from her. All right, you guys, so let us dive right into this interview with Edith Shi, Executive Director and former Head Group General Counsel of CK Hutchison Holdings. Are you ready? Let's go. The cost of producing Season 2 of the HALB Leadership Podcast is generously sponsored by the international law firm Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett. Headquartered in New York, Simpson is home to more than 900 lawyers in 10 offices around the world. The firm prides itself on providing leading-edge development and training to the next generation of lawyers. To learn more about Simpson, visit stblaw.com. Simpson has no influence or control over the content of this podcast, and each speaker's opinions are their own. So, Edith, thank you so much for speaking on our podcast. So, first question, can you tell us about where you grew up and your path to law school? For example, you were studying music and education before you switched to law. Can you tell us more about that journey and what prompted that decision? Sure. I was born and bred in Hong Kong. My parents came to Hong Kong in about 1950s and set up family here. I am the second of a family of seven. We used to relate ourselves to the Von Trapp family in The Sound of Music. They have five girls and two boys, and so do we. And we sing as a family. Anyhow, I grew up in Hong Kong. I had a very happy childhood, although there are seven of us and we would be fighting each and every day to get to the dining table and get to pick the eye of the fish, which is supposed to be a delicacy. Actually, I don't know why we liked it so much, but it's supposed to make your eyes sharp and beautiful. 
Anyhow, with seven kids is a big handful, and the first and the and the seventh has a gap of ten years. So we were we were born in quick succession. Mom was very busy, and there was a lot of happy jokes as we grew up. Now that we are older, and we would sit together and talk about the old days. But I finished secondary school in Hong Kong. That's a five-year secondary school term, and then I I went to Manila. Manila is a very strange place for most people when you talk about going for higher education. I tried to attend the University of the Philippines. Tried to get into that university to do dentistry. During those days, there is no dental school in Hong Kong, and. Everybody who tries to get to qualify to become a dentist, most of them go to the Philippines. So I arrived in the Philippines, knock on the door of the university, and mind you, a Philippine secondary school system is four years. So in Hong Kong, after five years of secondary education, you don't get to go to university right away. You have to do two years of preparatory course. So by the time you finish the real secondary school, you are already seven years in secondary school. So I came to the University of the Philippines. They wouldn't let me in because they said I didn't finish the additional two years. And I argued with the dean. I said, "Your secondary school only has four years. I am already one year more educated than your normal、yeah. student." Anyhow, I couldn't get in because there was a system. So I went around the block and found the College of Music. And the College of Music, being an art school, has a different admissions criteria. So, if you are placed musically at a certain level, you can gain entrance without having to go through the normal university system. So, I went there and took an assessment test. At the time, it was piano, and I got admitted to second year in university. So, I jumped one more year. I saved three years all in all. My aim was to get into the College of Music and then transfer to the dental school, which I never did. I liked it so much that I finished. I did music education, which is not the same as piano performing or singing. I couldn't imagine myself playing the piano or singing for ten hours a day. Music education is the road that led me to education. So when I started to find out more about education, I really think that I didn't know very much at all. So that's how Columbia came in. So I came to a teachers' college to study to become a teacher. I was in the doctoral program. This was two years into the program. I was starting to write my dissertation, getting ready, getting all the basics, and finding an appropriate topic. And whilst going through that, this thought came to me: What do I get out of a Doctoral degree from Columbia. Eventually, do I want to be writing、uh, big dissertations every year and publish? And actually, in a university, you have to fight for your space, just the same as in the quote unquote real world. So I took a pause and. Talk to myself because、uh, my parents weren't in or near me during those days. You don't just pick up the phone and call. 
I decided either would stay in New York and do all in America and do an MBA, or I should fly somewhere else and do a law degree. Eventually, I chose London instead of Hong Kong or New York, really because eventually I want to come back to Hong Kong and live here. So, getting a law degree in Hong Kong would be suitable, but it doesn't give me the UK perspective. So I went to England. I got qualified and came back to work in Hong Kong. It's a very long route, but thinking back, and many people have asked me the same question: If you were to do it again, would you just jump right into the law? And I said, I wouldn't, because I wouldn't have. As I wouldn't know how to turn the corner and get to the law, so I'm glad that I have a different area of training. Music is part of my life every day. It helps me to survive long days. My days are very long generally. The education part lives with me for the rest of my life. I learn every day and I teach every day. So after you, you know, finish your legal training in London, you started your legal career in private practice in Hong Kong, and then you joined the predecessor entity of C.K. Hutchison as an investment banker, and then you got rolled back into the law when you were asked to start its legal department. So can you tell us a bit more about that journey? Uh, yes, I'm very fortunate. I never have to really look for a job, and I don't have that many employees in my whole life. I came back to Hong Kong. After qualifying in London, I joined the largest local British firm, which is the predecessor of Mayer Brown in Hong Kong. It was called Johnson Stokes and Master then. I stayed there for five years. Very curious about another side of my legal practice. I was in um, company commercial law, corporate finance. I would run into clients that come to me. And say these are the terms that I have agreed with the other side, and please help me draft a legal document. I look at the terms. I said that's a very stupid transaction. <laughs> My client has been done in. I should have been there on day one, and I will help the client get a better deal. So I always wonder what happens when the deal starts, and not when it is sort of agreed and then documented. So I have always been quite interested in the investment banking side of this world, and uh, one day an opportunity came. A Columbia graduate, MBA, was heading this investment bank owned by the Chung Kong Group and Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. This person called Bob McBain, and he is he now works in Macau. He met me at a Columbia University Alumni Association function, and then he went to his headhunter, that was a、uh, Spencer Stewart. Do you know Edith G? The managing director says no. So Bob, the CEO of this investment bank, says, "If you don't know Edith G, then the next job for you is to get her to come and work for me, and you are not going to charge me." <laughs> so I was approached and. I found it quite interesting, but I was a little bit scared because five years in and、um, being quite appreciated, I got higher pay and I got special privileges. Very, very tempting, and、uh, not really because maybe in a way because 
they offer to pay me double. But it's not so much the money, but it's the opportunity, the world that I have always wanted to get to know a bit better. So I went to my partner in the law firm. I'm thinking of making a move. And they acted very fast. They discussed amongst themselves to offer me a partnership to stay. So when you have a choice, that's the difficulty. So you were tossing from one side to the other, the bank. No, stay. So it went on for a couple of weeks and I was going to stay because it would be quite an achievement to become a partner within such a short time. And, and I know that the firm uh, treasures my contribution. When I was about to go and tell my supervising partner that I'll stay, there's this little voice in my, in my heart here that says, you coward. And then I, I paused. And then I made an about turn and I went in to tell him I'm leaving. <laughs> so that's how I joined the investment bank. I was there for a little over three years. What I learned was as a lawyer, I get to see what my client is perceived to have lost, but I didn't get to see what he gained. And through this process, I begin to understand there is a reason why a deal is struck. There must be an offerer and a willing taker. And I don't think I am the one to judge the client has been done in. It would be good if there is a conscionable, a good investment banker to guide this person along the way. And even better, if this person is a lawyer. So I was very happy working in this bank called CEF, CEF Capital. CEF stands for Canadian Eastern Finance. It doesn't exist anymore today. But CEF is, as I said, owned 50% by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce and 50% by my current employer called Chong Kong Holdings. So after three years, one day the boss asked me, I want to offer you a position in this company called Hutchison Wampoa. That is a subsidiary of Chong Kong. I figured if I don't consider the offer, I might have to find another job. <laughs> and, and that job was uh, quite interesting. I didn't want to be a lawyer. There is a commercial, a business angle to it as the general manager for business development and strategic planning. And I was assured that the managing director there, you can't find a better boss than this person. This person is called Simon Murray. You can Google him and you will see that he has a very colorful and fulfilled life. Uh, he's still my mentor today. And I was there until now. So you ended up building CKHIH's in-house legal department pretty much from scratch. Are there any funny or interesting stories that you can tell us from those early days when you're first building the in-house legal team? Right. I, I have to add that Simon Murray left after also about three years and there came a new boss, my current boss, direct boss. He came in and said, let's take a look at the company. I want to look at the risk register and see how we are managing our risks across the board. 
Where's the legal department? I said, we don't have a legal department. He says, how can we not have a legal department? We are such a big company. So how do we look after legal affairs? Oh, we just go out and ask external help. So he looked at me and said, you are a lawyer. Today, you are the legal department. And I was hesitant because my aim getting into Hutchison Wampo was not to become a lawyer again. I want to savor the commercial side of the world. And I was assured that a legal department within a conglomerate is not a normal legal department. I will find my fair share of the commercial world. So I stayed and started. So I was a one-man band, and initially, I wouldn't say it's funny, but it was very difficult because we have five core businesses, and each business has its own, we call them managing directors, but here in America, we probably call them CEOs. They have their own territory, they man their own business, and they don't listen to a legal department that says, you cannot do this deal because the document is not in perfect condition. So I was the biggest enemy for a little while, just to let you have a little color as to what this company does, is a conglomerate in five core businesses. We have operations in over 50 countries and uh, with a workforce of uh, over 300,000. It's a Fortune 500 company. We operate five core businesses, first one being container ports. We are in 27 countries with 52 ports. The second business that we're in is retailing. We own supermarkets, electronic appliances stores, health and beauty stores. We have 16,000 shops around the world. And we operate in 25 markets. The third business we're in is infrastructure. We do water, waste management, toll roads, energy transport, grids, sending energy around in a city. The fourth business is oil and gas. We have operations in Canada, US, China, and Asia Pacific. And the last major business is telecommunications. We are a mobile data communicator in Europe, Asia, and Australian markets. At one point in time, we owned a telecommunications company that is the predecessor of Deutsche Telekom. We aggregated many smaller telecom companies in the US and sold to Deutsche Telekom for an enormous sum of money. So those are the five businesses. In the formative days of the legal department setup, I was very fortunate to have very strong support from management and the board. They want to establish a strong legal and compliance regime. But it was difficult because every CEO has their own turf and they don't want other people to come and meddle in their business. I would have in the middle of the night somebody calling me and leaving me a voicemail in my telephone mailbox saying, you lawyers are going to kill this deal. And all these terms that you are asking my team to obtain from the other side will cause negotiations to break down and I will hold you accountable for it.
The next day, we went on again, asked for the same terms, and I said, try again. Now, eventually, more often than not, when I say try again, we get it. But there were scenarios where we would have, in the middle of a negotiation, and this is a real case, a Korean port that we were acquiring. In the middle of the negotiation, this was like 9 or 10 p.m., the team was in the hotel, uh, in a meeting room, and I was called. The MD says, the CEO says, the counterparty just stomped out of the negotiation room crying. So he went back to his room and he says, I am out of here and no more discussions. I said, there isn't very much I can do. But next day he came back. He agreed to all the terms and we signed up. And later on, I found out from some of my external law firms, they said it's actually not unusual and not just applicable to Koreans. Many nations, many people in the negotiation team would think that I'm negotiating with another party to dispose of, to sell part of my country's assets. So they have this very ambivalent feeling about whether they're doing the right thing. But... I actually learned that when one negotiates, one should always leave something on the table. So you have the next deal coming and you have a partner that is willing to deal with you. If you win all the clauses that you want in a, in, in a legal document and lose a cooperating partner, you lost the deal. Do you think your time as a banker made you more sensitive to such moments? In a way, yes, because I can begin to think like the other side. But at the end of the day, I think it's also personality. I didn't realize, but I looked up the meaning of Edith. There aren't that many people that are called Edith. I would have probably, in the formative years of my life, met three Ediths going through primary school, secondary school, and university. Now, these few years, I am seeing some Ediths. I think this name has come back. It's a very old English name. I used to think it means abundance of virtue. And I looked it up. It says, rich in war. So this is somebody who's going to be successful in fighting. So that's probably in my blood. But the urge to win which I believe many lawyers think is a positive attribute, has to be tempered with a good common sense and understanding of the psychology that is operating within a negotiating scenario. And I think that part of the education that I had in teacher training, as well as the few years in the investment banking world, did help me. And actually, this is a perfect transition to the next question, which is, what else would you say are your secrets to success and to being such a valued, respected leader in both business and law? So I remember one anecdote that you once told me is that you slept overnight at a couch in a conference room at your outside counsel's office when you were trying to get a deal done. And I think there's something about that picture, you know, of like a GC staying overnight at a law firm that really shows that sort of like leading from the front. Are there any other kind of factors that you would attribute to your success? I only told you part of the story. I didn't know you picked <laughs> that part up. Now, it's not only me that was sleeping there. 
My finance director was sleeping there. My tax lawyer that I brought from Hong Kong was sleeping there. It was one of the largest transactions that my company ever conducted. At the time, it was called the deal of the century. We sold a very valuable asset, a telecommunications asset called Orange. And the whole team was there. My CEO, my CFO, my executive director, I was the general counsel. We were in London. We imported other colleagues from Hong Kong. We were there for one month. The importance of that picture, I actually took some photos of other people that were sleeping on the couch, <laughs> is when you want to be serious about a deal, a transaction, you get your hands dirty. You don't tell somebody else to do it. You tell somebody else to do it, they don't always do it the way you want it done. There are some deals that one must be totally involved and there are those that some other people can do and maybe do a better job. That part of getting the hands dirty also taught me something on a different level in my office. After five o'clock, that's the time I don't want to answer telephone calls because a call would come in and say, the market is closed. We will be doing this deal tonight and we have to finish it before tomorrow morning and we'll make an announcement. So this is 5 p.m. and a call came in and say, we want to do a convertible bond tonight. So I looked around who would be able to help me. Now, the head that leads those kind of transactions was on leave. So I looked at another team and I said, okay, I will get this lawyer to help me. So this colleague came in and said, oh, but Edith, I've never done a convertible bond. I said, don't worry, we have external lawyers and I'm here to help you. So I was there the whole night. In the middle of the night, a banker wrote me an email saying, Auntie Edith, is that you? This is from Citibank, counterparty <laughs> lawyer. I said, yeah. Hi, how are you? She wrote back and she said, but you shouldn't be here doing the deal at this time of the day. Your other lawyers will look after them. We just said hello, but I said, you know, I'm happy to be part of it. I learned this because if I wasn't there that night, my colleague would be very worried and she might be calling me all night. And the fact that I was there, maybe I wasn't really looking in each and every clause and make sure that it's all right. She's the one doing it. But the fact that I was there to be with her gave her a lot of confidence and uh, she was very uh, thankful. She's still with me today after about 18 years. That's how I learned to get my hands dirty, whether it's doing the deal uh, myself or being there for my colleagues. So I also love that you said the Citibank banker called you Auntie Edith, because I think this just really shows how many mentees you have all around Hong Kong, all over New York. I mean, I met you through Columbia's alumni program in our career center. And every year you just take on so many students and you mentor all of us. So on this topic of mentorship, at what point of your career did you start actively mentoring students? Would you say that mentorship was always in your blood since you started off wanting to be a teacher? And what is your mentorship philosophy? I didn't go out and look for mentees, first of all. There would be, this was probably five, six years into 
the setup of the legal department, a colleague came to me and said, my daughter needs to learn something during the summer and she's coming back from university during the summer. Can you take her on? She's interested in the law. So I took one on and then the next one came along and then more came along. We don't have a formal internship program within the company, but I would do what I can to accommodate. And soon the work went out. If you want to have a productive summer, go and look for Edith Chi. So it was an informal. I gathered more and more mentees, interns over the years. And then there was the Columbia experience overseas, the CEO program. That's where I met you, Jeannie. And each year we have at least one mentee. Now, very often a mentor who has volunteered to be a mentor became unavailable when the time comes. This is usually the summer months and they might be on vacation. And then I would have these quote-unquote often mentees that I would gather up and I became the auntie Edith that looked after all of them. In addition to that, I would be asked by local institutes like Institute of Chartered Governance or the Law Society whether I could offer a seat over the summer. So over time, we have churned out quite a lot of interns. Some remain as quote-unquote mentee for many years, like you, Jeannie, and some disappear. But whether they continue to be friends or not, I think what's important is when they pass through the door in my company, they learn something when they leave. And when you take on mentees, I know firsthand just how invested you are. You know, you invite us all to your apartment, you cook for us, you, you know, take us on field trips. It's just, you're very, very invested. And I say, I keep telling people that meeting you when I was in undergrad changed the trajectory of my career. So I hope to one day also learn to be a mentor like you. I'm glad you told me because I was very surprised when you told me that you were doing mentoring with other uh, students. And I said to myself, this is really wonderful because I never knew what I do as part of my life every day would have an impact on somebody else. That would cause that person to become a mentor herself or himself. And I really appreciate your feedback. You are a perfect person to be a mentor. Yeah, watching you has just taught me the kind of person I want to be, you know, like respected at my work, but also just like a good person who like empowers the next generation. So thank you. So last question for today. So our podcast basically is targeted at law and pre-law students who are just, you know, starting out our careers. Is there any other advice that you have for us or anything else that you wish that we knew? I'm always asked the question, advice for young people, generally. There is no shortcut in life. I have done everything the difficult way. I never get to leapfrog and do something without or achieve something without having put in the effort. We held our annual AGM, annual general meetings yesterday. Yesterday I had three AGMs and I was in charge of one of them. The previous night I was reading the script 
for hours. My husband came along and said, what are you doing mumbling to yourself? So I'm just familiarizing myself to the script. And yesterday at the AGM, everybody came to me and said, oh, those proceedings were run so well. Everything went smoothly and you speak so well. I said, you know, I studied all night. So there is nothing that comes easy. You have to put in your effort to reap the harvest. That's my number one. Number two, be demanding of yourself. Be demanding of yourself and be less demanding of others. I think many people regard me as a tiger mom. I'm the tiger lady. So I, I keep on telling myself, I have to have a very high standard of myself. And when I deal with my colleagues, I should be more forgiving. But that's part of my DNA. When I can't do that, people forgive me because they know that I'm being stern, not because I don't like them, because I know that they can do a better job and they're not doing it. And everyone is one's champion. You can start from level one. So long as you go on to level two, you can start from level 10, but you never move on to 11, then you haven't improved. And I had another mentee whom you know, that came to me and say, my boss is always giving me more work. It's always me and not the other paralegals. I said, you're so lucky. I was also complaining like that when I was growing up. Why me, me, me again? How about those other people that are sitting there chewing their fingers? And now I know why it was me, me and me, because my boss knew I would deliver. And by being the me, 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 I get to learn a lot more. So I tell people say, yes, please be me. Come to me and I will help you. So the world is fair. If you're able to say me, 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 your employer knows and you will be remunerated accordingly. Not necessarily in monetary terms, but you will see the reward. My first job, my supervisor used to say, the reward for good work is more work. <laughs> Absolutely right. That's how you grow and learn. Well, Edith, thank you so, so much for your time. This was a wonderful podcast interview, and I'm sure that our listeners will learn so much from you. I'm so glad I get to share your advice, not just with the Columbia community that we both know, but also with the Harvard community and beyond. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I really uh, enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for listening to the HALB Leadership Podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Please also leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at HALB Leadership. All right, until next time, bye-bye.